Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Sound Medicine Podcast. I'm Barbara Lewis. This is episode number 14. It has been one of those months when a business story taught us a lot about a health condition that millions of Americans deal with every day. It all began when the drug company Mylan boosted the price of its injectable EpiPen to more than $600 per two-pack. As you probably know by now, that's the injectable gadget that you jab into a person's thigh to give them a quick dose of epinephrine to treat severe allergic reaction. Since doctors often counsel their patients with severe allergies to carry two EpiPens with them at all time, that price jump kicked up a storm over drug pricing and monopolies and allegations of corporate greed and on and on. But we thought it would be interesting to dig into the question of allergies. For example, why does it seem like there are more allergies than there used to be, especially among children? And is there anything that can be done to really prevent them or cure one once it's been identified? Later, we'll be speaking with a doctor who is treating children with peanut allergies by giving them peanuts in tiny, tiny doses. His goal isn't so much to cure them as to lower the risk of fatal reaction to an accidental exposure. This is perhaps the best treatment currently available. This would, I think, take a lot of the worry away once they're exposed to this therapy. But first, I got a primer on EpiPens and allergies from Dr. David Patterson. He's an immunologist and allergist who practices in suburban Indianapolis. They're used for severe allergic life-threatening reactions, which could be to foods or a food allergy or a stinging insect allergy or latex allergy. Maybe you had an allergy to a contrast you received for a radiographic study in the hospital. Maybe you just have what we call anaphylaxis, which is a systemic allergic reaction that we may or may not know the cause of. So all of those items could require an EpiPen or epinephrine. And in terms of how many people need, it's generally thought that you need at least one two-pack because there's some evidence in the medical literature that 30% of the time patients need a second dose. So when someone's having a reaction, we want you to give the EpiPen or the injectable epinephrine immediately. Do not wait. And then also, if the medics haven't arrived and the patient's not better within about five minutes, give a second dose. Yeah. So how long do these EpiPens last? They should last for at least a year, but we see local pharmacies giving EpiPens out that are expiring in three to six months. They come off the assembly line, I'm told, with around 20 months of expiration before they expire. 
Then they go sit in a warehouse uh, where they age. Then they go sit in a pharmacy where they age, and then they're given to patients. Uh, with a shorter date. So I tell my patients not to accept an EpiPen if it has less than a year's expiration. And again, if it has less than a year's expiration, we're just increasing the cost to patients dramatically. So what's so special about EpiPens? Because as I read this morning, um, the drug inside the EpiPen is worth about a dollar. Yeah, I was looking online over the weekend, and you can buy an ampule of 1 to 1,000 epinephrine, which is what's in the EpiPen, uh, with a prescription. You have to have a doctor's prescription, but with a doctor's prescription, you can buy that for about $5. The thing that's special about the EpiPen is the device. The problem with people having an ampule of epinephrine and a syringe is, first of all, they have to know how to open the ampule, which is glass, and they have to know how to draw it up and administer it. And that's a real challenge for people who don't have a healthcare background. And there used to be a device on the market called the Twinject, and the Twinject was two doses of epinephrine, but the second dose was in a syringe that you'd actually pull out of the device and take the syringe and inject it. And they found that people just wouldn't do that. So it's very difficult to get people to inject epinephrine with a syringe. It's even difficult to get people to inject epinephrine with an EpiPen. So that's the challenge of using the much cheaper product. And so this EpiPen is something that Myelin produces and other companies cannot? There's two other products on the market. There's the Adrenal Click, which is made by Amidra Pharmaceuticals, and it has a cash price of about $450. And then there's the generic epinephrine injection made by Lineage Therapeutics, and it's about $450 as well. Now, both of those items can be obtained for quite a bit less if you have coupons that they have online. So there's really three people in the market, but it's hard to find sometimes the adrenoclick and the uh, generic epinephrine injection. So that's the problem is availability. And so Myelin's making its own generic um, or announced that it's making its own generic, which is not, I mean, that, that that's happened before and for pharmaceutical companies will, will produce their, their own generic. But this one seems particularly interesting to me because I can't figure out What's generic? The, the drug is, is something common that's available. Um, they, obviously, the device they've been making um, all along is not going to change. Well, I think what's happening is, uh, again, it's a smart business decision. Like you said, a number of pharmaceutical companies, uh, when their patent gets close to expiring, uh, they get into their own generic market so they don't lose totally. So uh, Mylan is getting into the generic market, realizing that Teva has a generic that's probably coming out next year in 2017, and in 2018, there's probably going to be another generic. So I think Mylan's trying to get ahead of the game to get name recognition for their generic so that when the other generics come out, theirs will be the one that's in post people's mind. When Mylan bought the rights to sell EpiPen around 2007, EpiPens were selling for like $100 a two-pack. So, you know, we, we have this problem in this country about determining what the value of medication should be. And we seem to have a difficult time having an intelligent adult discussion on really what's fair and what's not fair. And both sides kind of dig their heels in and nothing ever happens. That's the problem, I think, with drug prices in this country. And so I don't see, until we get some generics in a few years, I don't see the, this issue changing a whole lot. I think when we get three generics on the market in a couple of years, this discussion will probably go away because the price will be much cheaper. Let's broaden this this discussion out for a moment because it seems like I'm reading a lot about children with severe allergies and asthma. Uh, are severe allergies and asthma on the increase? They are. Um, and, and really to get a picture of this, we need to go back in time. If you go back in time to the 1800s, the early 1800s with John Bostock, who was the doctor in, in England and London who originally described hay fever, which he called summer, uh, summer catarrh. And he also described asthma, which is suffocative catarrh. 
He was the first to describe those. He went around London at that time, which had a population over a million. And he only could find about a half a dozen people who had the same symptoms. Fast forward to 1828 now, he publishes a second paper where he's only got about 20-some people he can find in London, and he says that none of the cases occur in people who are poor. It's interesting that even in the 1800s, this disease wasn't very common if you were poor, but was much more common if you were of middle or upper class. Then in the middle 1800s, you had John Blackley who discovered pollen. Interestingly, he found no cases of hay fever or very few cases of hay fever or pollen fever in uh, farmers. So then fast forward to today where we have this hygiene hypothesis, which says that people who live on farms and people who have more siblings in their families tend to have less incidence of asthma and allergies. And that's the hygiene hypothesis that was started by Dr. David Strachan in the late 1980s, published in the British Medical Journal. And so here comes the recent study just published in the New England Journal of Medicine comparing the Indiana Amish to the South Dakota Hutterite children, uh, showing that exposure to farm animals was the biggest determining factor in whether a child developed allergies or asthma. Can you tell us a little bit about the study and why they chose those two groups? So they chose those two groups because genetically they're very close. Uh, They're from German-speaking regions in the Alpine area of uh, Europe. So that's why they chose the uh, two groups. Also, they have fairly similar lifestyles in that they're both uh, agricultural-based lifestyles. The main difference is the Amish don't use mechanization pretty much for their farming, whereas the Hutterites are very much like our traditional farmers. They use big machines and electricity and all those things. Also, what we've shown in this study as well as others is that farming is not farming. And by that, we mean that farming is practiced differently in different parts of the world. As this study shows and others before it have shown, farming where you have the barn attached to the house is much different than a traditional farm where the barn is much removed from the house. Because what happens is mothers take care of young children and they go out and milk the cows and the young children are playing in the barn, whereas with like the Hutterite population, that doesn't happen. And what this study showed is there was about a fourfold increase in the prevalence of asthma and allergies in the Hutterites who had the mechanized farming business versus the Amish who had the traditional farming life like we saw in this country back in the 1800s. Furthermore, what this study did, which was new, was it took it one step further and said, okay, what's happening on a molecular and cellular level that's going on? And it appears what's happening is the dust on the Amish farms that these kids are inhaling and being subjected to every day, the dust seems to skew their innate immune system into a situation away from developing allergies. We have thought for a long time that when a child is born in in the very first months of life, that a child's immune system faces a fork in the road, and it can develop allergies and asthma, or it can go down that fork normally and just fight off normal childhood infections. And so that's what we're trying to understand is, when is that switch activated? How is it activated? What part of the immune system is it activated in? And how can we control that pharmacologically? And I think this study brings us a step forward in terms of being able to understand those mechanisms with the idea that eventually we may be able to manipulate that. So what is exactly in the, the barn? I mean, what is it about farm animals that would make the difference? Well, so the issue there is it's, it's uh, what's called endotoxin which is found in the cell walls of gram-negative bacteria, which are on the manure and and other things in the barn. But 
interestingly, in this study, we, we hoped to get the answer in this study, but when they looked at the microbes, they didn't have enough of the sample to really do an extensive analysis to say, okay, this is what's in the Amish barns, and this is what's in the Hutterite barns, and this is the difference. So I'm sure that's another study that they're working feverishly to get done, because that's the key, is what's the microorganism or microorganisms, or what's the microbiome difference in the Amish barns versus the Hutterite barns that's driving this innate immune system shift away from allergies and asthma. So as someone who specializes in allergies and asthma and treating children a lot of the time, do you just tell the pregnant women and the, and their newborns to head to northern Indiana? <laughs> well, I think there's a lot more than just pathogen exposure. I think it's a lot to do with our lifestyle, and I think it's overuse of antibiotics, um, I think it's our diet. I mean, our diet has changed dramatically. There are some studies out there that show pretty convincingly that children who have a diet higher in fresh fruits and vegetables have less wheezing. So I, I, I encourage parents to have a healthy diet in pregnancy and to obviously breastfeed, and then when the child gets old enough to start consuming food, to have a very well-rounded diet. There's also some studies looking at the use of yogurt and um, probiotics. And there's some pretty compelling data that using probiotics or yogurt in the last trimester of pregnancy and then the first six months for the child, if you're breastfeeding, you would obviously take it as a mother. If you're uh, not breastfeeding, you put it in the bottle for the child, the probiotic. But that can reduce the incidence of eczema uh, by about uh, 30%. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't seem to affect a child developing asthma or nasal allergies, but it does significantly reduce the chance of developing eczema. So let's talk a little bit about inner cities. You know, we think about big, dirty cities um, and people who might not take their children in to get a lot of antibiotics and, and might, uh, maybe they're not getting the fruits and vegetables, but they're, but they're certainly exposed to a lot of things. But that really, that seems to almost increase the asthma. Yes, and that's, that's why the, I think the hygiene hypothesis is still a hypothesis. That's one of the holes in the hypothesis that people point to is that you do have all these inner-city populations which seem to have a high prevalence of allergies and asthma. And why is that if the hygiene hypothesis is true? And as you say, uh, presumably they have a high exposure. But then there again, they have a high exposure, but maybe not a high exposure to the right things. And maybe as we zero in on this and we find exactly what, my, what the microbes are and exactly what the mechanism is, we may find that those microbes are in farming areas but not so much in inner cities. That may be the key. So what can we do as a society, as a community, to help decrease the problem of severe allergies and asthma? Is there a, a, a role for communities to play? Well, I think it's to, I think it's to encourage healthier lifestyles, uh, which is not just true for allergies and asthma, but, you know, all the other epidemic diseases we're facing, cancer, diabetes, obesity, uh, all these things are tied together. Um, we need, as physicians and as a community, to encourage people to exercise more and have healthier lifestyles, and I think uh, that's really important. Dr. David Patterson, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Well, thank you for having me today. Dr. David Patterson is an immunologist in private practice on the north side of Indianapolis. Coming up after a break, we'll speak with a researcher who is figuring out how to trick the body into not having a severe allergic reaction. You're listening to the Sound Medicine Podcast. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? 
United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome back to Sound Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis. We're talking about food allergies during this episode. And the one we hear so much about, peanut allergies in young children. This is perhaps the best treatment currently available. That's Dr. Soman Abraham. He's a professor of pathology at Duke University, and he recently published a paper about his lab's work to lower the body's immune response at the cellular level. He's been working with young children with a diagnosed peanut allergy, giving them very small doses of peanuts. The hope is that down the road, those children will either outgrow the allergy or at least not have to be so terrified of accidental exposure. It's worked pretty well, particularly in the cases dealing with children. By and large, uh, it's been very effective when given fairly early before the children begin to develop uh, more severe forms of allergy. Okay, and so what age would that be? Well, I think about uh, maybe two to three years. So how do you begin that process? Well, basically what happens is the children are first tested for allergy and presumably they're coming to see the pediatrician when they have these symptoms. And once they have been diagnosed as being allergic, they are then given increasing doses of allergens over a short period of time. Uh, The goal is to desensitize critical cells on the skin, if it's a skin injection or if it's something given through the gut. It's meant to desensitize mast cells around the gut regions to desensitize them so that they do not release critical inflammatory mediators when they see the antigen a second time. So typically what happens is when the children encounter the antigens the first time, they develop specific antibodies, called, uh, which are IgE antibodies, that have a great specificity for the allergen, so that the next time they see it, the response is pretty vigorous. So the goal of this desensitization process is to inactivate the key cell that is responsible for the harmful side effects of that reaction, and that is the mast cell. In what form do you give the peanuts? Peanut allergens are kind of broken down into small fragments, if you will, and then they're made into an emulsion and then given orally. 
And, and is this done in a doctor's office or at home? How is this done? Yeah, it definitely has to be done in the doctor's office. So obviously everyone's standing by and waiting for an adverse reaction. But what are you treating that with? I mean, I'm thinking about EpiPens and all the other things that are available. So what's happening in that office and what are you kind of standing by with? So it, uh, I, uh, EpiPens would be for the more drastic cases, but then there are steroids, antihistamines, and other steroids, and so on, that could be applied, because uh, the, the, the expectations, you won't have an anaphylactic attack, you would have a more milder reaction, and so you'd give, you know, antihistamines and steroidal treatment, rather than the more uh, drastic treatment. And this uh, rush desensitization is actually the first step of the treatment regimen that is given to children. So the early phases of the treatment regimen involves giving the antigen in fairly short intervals of time. And then after that, the children are then given the antigen with increasing amounts with longer intervals of time where they start getting the doses every six months, if you will. But in the initial stages, they're given within a space of hours, increasing doses of the antigen. Wow. So can I, can I get an example? I'm just wondering, I'm just trying to picture this, um, that someone comes to their office with their two-year-old. And what would that time be like? That, kind of walk me through what it would be like for the patient and, and the parent then. I mean, how often would the peanut allergies be given? How would they be monitored? Right. So they are given in the first day they come there within a few hours uh, for the first period of, if, say, the space of time would be maybe three or four hours. And then after that, they are sent home. Uh, and then they come every day for at least two days. And after that, it's spaced out uh, at longer intervals of time. And they are watched very closely to see if they have any sort of reactions. And if any of that becomes obvious, then the, uh, this treatment is immediately stopped. So are the children that are successful, does success mean that the children are, are cured of the allergy for the rest of their lives? <laughs> no. So what happens is they are uh, desensitized or tolerized to the antigen, and that goes only for a certain period of time. So the early rush desensitization, which I work on, and which was just recently described in our paper, occurs during the first several hours, uh, maybe eight hours of this treatment. And then, as I said, they go to the more prolonged treatment with longer intervals. And that involves a somewhat different mechanism of uh, protection, but still the expectation is the treatment will provide protection for maybe six months to a year after which they may need to be retrained, if you will. The immune system has to be desensitized again. But the thinking is, as children grow older, they tend to get away from this allergic reaction. Okay, so they grow out of it. Well, let's say a good number of cases, yes. So what does this mean for the, the children then um, who are desensitized? Can they, is it that they can just be around uh, peanuts? Is it that they can eat peanuts? Uh, I don't. It all depends on each individual, um, but I would suspect that uh, one has to be very wary about exposing them. But the main thing is 
if they took a small amount, then they would be protected and not go into any acute uh, reaction. And so the idea is that they not expose themselves to it, but if they accidentally take it, they would be protected. Now, I'm thinking as a parent might... Okay, so you you get the six months and the six months and the six months, so you're 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 out farther, but you're worrying about if your child is going to have a, a reaction and needs to come in for more treatment. I mean, what are they on the uh, alert for? Well, they have to be cautious about exposing the children to the allergen. So, I mean, that's a given, but. This is just protecting them against sort of accidental intake that might occur. This would, I think, take a lot of the worry away once they're exposed to this therapy. They don't have to be super vigilant, I don't think. Are there theories as to why this works for some children very well, uh, for some children kind of well, and for some children not at all? Do, Do we understand the theory behind that? Well, it depends on their own immune makeup. I work mostly on mast cells, and uh, we find that mast cells in different individuals respond somewhat differently. So the desensitization approaches might have different effect on these cells. You know, it's sort of a trial and error thing where you have to test each individual to see uh, what the responses are like and so on. My thinking is the differences in effectiveness is critically dependent on the immune makeup of that particular individual. Let's talk a little bit about your research that resulted in this paper then. So what was the real goal of your particular research? This particular uh, approach of rush desensitization was described over 100 years ago, and uh, it's always been unclear as to uh, how it worked. Uh, several investigators over the years have studied this protocol, and uh, there's a general consensus was that the target of this treatment were these cells called mast cells, uh, which are found in the mucosal areas of the body as well as in the skin and so on. And these cells have uh, large granules within them, uh, which are basically composed of inflammatory mediators such as histamine and so on, which upon release can give rise to a lot of the reactions that are associated with allergy or severe anaphylaxis or shock. We started to investigate what happened at the molecular level and at the cellular level to these cells during this procedure. And we undertook these studies in mice as well as in outside the body in individual mast cells. What we found was that by giving these allergen antigens with increasing doses, the actin were moving away from their normal positions in the cell to the center of the cell. And so they were essentially being displaced from their normal location. So after the desensitization procedure, if the masses were exposed to a fairly large dose of the antigen, they were no longer able to release their histamine load because the actin, which is mediating that release, are not found in the normal positions. So by desensitizing the cell, the cell was fooled into moving the actin away from its normal position. So you just tricked it. Yes, it was being tricked, yes. And so what happens is 
now that the actin is displaced, it takes many, many hours for the actin to come back to the original position. So that's why we have this period of mast cell desensitization. So during the period when the actin is in its displaced state, the patient or subject who's been exposed to this are totally unresponsive to allergens. So I had read about another desensitization treatment, but that included really giving tiny, tiny bits of, of, of the peanut allergen almost on a daily basis, you know, to kind of keep that desensitization up. And it sounds like this is, a, this is different, that the kids obviously need to avoid peanut allergens, but they don't have to ingest a tiny bit very frequently. Yeah, so the immune therapy procedure involves um, the early desensitization, which is the rush desensitization, followed by giving the antigens at a more prolonged intervals. So one could make a combination of that where you begin to give them a little bit at a time. So part of the early stages may involve the mechanism that I'm just describing, but then uh, as you proceed with that therapy for longer intervals, then the other mechanisms kick in. So this whole immunotherapy involves multiple cells and multiple interactions. And I've been focused on the mast cell, which is involved in the early interactions within the first several hours in the desensitization procedure. But then later on, other cells come in, such as T cells and so on, and they are inactivated through other mechanisms. Will your research be applicable to other allergens? I mean, I'm focusing here on peanut allergies, but um, kind of tricking those mast cells, would that be uh, something for other uh, life-threatening allergies? Yes, yes. I would suspect uh, uh, it would be effective against asthma, for example, um, uh, where one could apply the antigens in the nasal region or in the or through uh, you could apply it by inhalation for example yes i would suspect the same mechanisms apply there too so one last question um where do you see peanut allergies going do you foresee the day where that is just something that you know, something that used to happen yeah it's hard to predict that it will disappear because of the environment that we are living in we do our best to get rid of all the bacteria. We use antibacterial compounds in our soap solutions and so on. So we're actually encouraging the environment for more of these allergic reactions rather than going away from it. So uh, unless we make some changes to uh, our uh, health habits, I think uh, these allergies are likely to remain a significant problem. Dr. Soman Abraham, thank you so much for talking with me. I sure appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Dr. Soman Abraham is a professor of pathology in the Department of Immunology at Duke University. And that's it for this Sound Medicine Podcast Project. We sure hope you've enjoyed listening to these wonderful experts talking about this fascinating science as much as we've enjoyed listening to them. The producer of Sound Medicine has been Nora Hyatt with help from Eric Metcalf. Chris Lieber has been our engineer. And we are grateful for the support we have had from the IU School of Medicine, especially from Holly Vonderheit. I'm Barbara Lewis, wishing you all 
good health. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> <laughs> 